The Haunted UK podcast is produced and released in stereo. Listening through an environment such as headphones or stereo speakers will ensure you get the best experience. This show is sponsored by CDS Print and Design. For high-quality printed t-shirts, coasters, placemats, mugs and drinks containers, stickers and much, much more, contact Colin or Debbie for a no-obligation quote. You can find CDS Print and Design on Instagram, Facebook and now Etsy. If you love the Haunted UK podcast and you'd like to help keep the lights burning, the wheels turning and the stories rolling, then why not consider getting over to coffee and donating to the show? That's ko-fi and search for the Haunted UK podcast. You can subscribe to donate just £3 per month, the price of a coffee, or as much as you like. If you'd prefer not to subscribe, then any donation to the show will be greatly appreciated. A target of 30 subscribers is the aim, and with your help, I know that's more than possible. The goal is to be able to release bonus content to subscribers and to get Haunted UK Podcast merchandise out there and available to all you amazing listeners. You'll even get a shout-out in an episode of the main show. So that's ko-fi and search for the Haunted UK Podcast to donate. Thank you. And here are the names of some amazing people who have donated to the show recently. They are Becca Hyde, Mary Connolly, Dan Beavers, Rhea Parker, Mark Burgess, and last but not least, Alexis Campbell, who has now upgraded her donation to monthly. Thank you all so much. And just to keep all of you amazing coffee donators updated, there will be a link coming soon via Coffee for a special thank you bonus episode, recorded just for you. This will be released on the 23rd of December, and it's an absolute cracker. Do you love ghost stories? Tales of haunted houses and poltergeist encounters? What about other areas of the paranormal, such as strange creatures, doppelgangers, time slips, and even creepy unexplained disappearances? If you do, then you're in the right place. And these are the topics which we'll be visiting every two weeks throughout the many future episodes and seasons of this show. And just to ensure that you get the best experience, there will be no advertisements throughout the main content of this episode. But please stick around to the end of the show, where you'll hear a small promo from one of the many great podcasts out there, which I know you'll want to check out. So without any further delay... Let's get this episode started. After appearing in silhouette in an interview with George Knapp on KLAS News, Bob Lazar received a phone call at home. He picked up and said hello, and as soon as the voice on the other end began speaking... He knew exactly who it was. It was his supervisor from Area 51's S4 facility, Dennis Miriani, with a chilling message. He simply said, Do you have any idea what we're going to do to you now? The phone then went dead.
is episode 27 of season 3 of the Haunted UK podcast. And in its third and final episode in the Area 51 and Bob Lazar miniseries, we'll find out what happened after Bob's revelations, as well as the sceptical arguments against him. Bob Lazar's second interview with George Knapp took place not long after the first, but this time he appeared normally and his identity was revealed. The story went into the stratosphere and literally overnight, Area 51 went from being one of the most highly secretive and guarded places in the world to becoming a tourist attraction. People ranging from holidaymakers, factory workers and lawyers to ufologists and paranormal investigators began flocking to the desert and climbing the mountains to get a view of this ultra-top-secret base, all in the hope of seeing a real UFO. Behind the scenes, the US military was already preparing a land grab, which would swallow up most of the vantage points at which people could get a view of the base. Even today, the closest you can get to seeing Area 51 is a mountain called Tikaboo Peak. This vantage point is some 26 miles to the east of the base, with a summit of around 7,900 feet. Previously, Freedom Ridge and White Sides were the best locations for curious onlookers to get photos and video footage, but these were deemed out of bounds when the land grab took place. Now let's be as fair as possible to the US military. If you're developing top-secret aircraft, and test flying them at a secure location, the last thing you need are hundreds, if not thousands of people clambering all over the mountains and hills with cameras and video equipment, trying to get a sneak peek. You need to keep your cards close to your chest. After the warning from Dennis Miriani, Bob began to fear for his life. His friend, Gene Huff, who was with him when he went to watch the test flights from the mountains, would notice strange things happening whenever he was around Bob in public, or even when he was on the phone. He would hear strange clicks over the phone line as if it was still being monitored. Gene also remembers multiple occasions when representatives from the Office of Federal Investigations would just turn up at Bob's house with a search warrant and begin checking through all of his personal belongings. This would also allegedly take place wherever Bob worked. What were they searching for? Were they hoping to find evidence of classified information taken from the S-4 facility? Or were they just simply there to enforce the fact that wherever Bob went, he would always be on their radar? Bob also noticed that he could no longer find or obtain personal documents like his birth certificate or proof of his qualifications or educational achievements. This was a concern that he raised with George Knapp during the two interviews, but George was already on the case, as he also wanted verification that Robert Scott Lazar was really the man who he claimed he said he was. George was never too interested in the UFO phenomenon before he broke the Bob Lazar story. He admits that he had curiosity, especially after a man named John Lear walked into his office in 1987 with the tale of a black triangular-shaped aircraft that was invisible to radar, which was flying around the Tonopah test range up at Area 51. 
That aircraft was the F-117A Nighthawk, or the stealth fighter to you and me. John Lear also brought stories to the table concerning agreements between the US government and alien civilizations, which enabled the military to have access to highly advanced technologies in exchange for human subjects who could be abducted, examined, and returned. He also told tales of bases on the moon, as well as other amazing and seemingly impossible stories involving aliens, UFOs, and government cover-ups. He was also a friend of Bob Lazar's, and was also present when the test flights took place. Now before we all make judgments on John Lear's character, let's just quickly go back through his backstory. John Lear was the son of William Powell Lear, who not only invented the Lear jet, but also invented things like the 8-track audio cartridge and the battery eliminator. John Lear would become a commercial airline pilot, a test pilot for top-secret aircraft, and also a pilot who flew missions for the CIA. He also holds a number of aviation speed records and allegedly the most Federal Aviation Administration Airman certificates of any pilot in the world. You would think that this would make him an ideal witness and ally to have with you when you've experienced craft which could truly be out of this world, but we'll come back to him soon. It was John Lear who was instrumental in setting up the meeting between George Knapp and Bob Lazar, with John mentioning to George that he knew someone who worked in a facility in the Area 51 complex. So let's go back to George Knapp's search for proof of Bob Lazar's accreditations. George decided to start before the second interview even aired. He remembers that he had put a request out for anyone who had worked at Area 51 to come forward with any information that they could give. Around six people called and promised to give interviews, and every single one of them cancelled after telling George Knapp that they had been visited and advised not to talk. George firmly believed that these were government and military representatives that would have taken their threats to the next level if they'd have needed to. George also spent more time with Bob Lazar and said that he witnessed firsthand the treatment that Bob was being subjected to. He said Bob's home would be broken into and left without damage, just a window or door left open. The same would happen to his car. These were subtle reminders that his life was under constant surveillance and that his former employers could reach him in any way that they wanted to. George decided firstly to focus on Los Alamos Laboratory to try and get some sort of evidence of Lazar having worked there. He figured that because Los Alamos was, and still is, involved in highly classified projects for the US government and military, proving Lazar worked there would go some way to making it more believable that Lazar could have been harvested by the US Air Force to work out at Area 51. Upon contacting Los Alamos, he was absolutely stonewalled. When asked again if they had ever had a Bob Lazar or a Robert Scott Lazar working at the lab in any capacity at all, they said no, so George decided to dig a little deeper. He managed to find a phone book for the years that Lazar had claimed that he had worked for the facility, and right there was a listing for Bob Lazar. He then found newspaper clippings regarding Los Alamos physicist Bob Lazar with his newly completed jet-powered vehicle. 
George went back to Los Alamos once again to put the evidence forward to them that he'd found to prove that Bob Lazar had been there. And in response, they said that he may have worked there, but it was probably for someone else. George Knapp even claimed that he went to Los Alamos' laboratory with a film crew and Bob Lazar himself. They didn't have to stop for security, were led around the building confidently by Lazar, who seemed to know exactly where he was going, and even waved to specific people who he claimed to have known. Authorities at Los Alamos, though, stood firm. George then decided to go back to Bob's previous employer, which was Kirk Mayer, who had involvement with Los Alamos, and this time he had a much more positive start. Representatives at Kirk Mayer confirmed that Bob Lazar had worked there and they had employment records and payment slips for him, and they would be more than happy to supply copies to George Knapp. Two weeks went by with nothing arriving, so George decided to chase the paperwork up. Another promise came and went. After sending numerous letters and making dozens more phone calls, Kirk Mayer said that they didn't have any record of Bob Lazar ever working for them. MIT and Caltech were next on his list. These were both educational institutions which Lazar claimed to have attended in 1982 and 1985 respectively and gained a master's degree of science in physics and also a master's degree of science in electronic technology. Neither of these institutions had any records whatsoever of Bob Lazar's attendance, let alone any proof of degrees. To try and prove his attendance at Area 51 and the facility at S4, Lazar handed over his security clearance badge and a copy of a W-2 payment slip issued by the United States Department of Naval Intelligence. Ex-NASA mission specialist Robert Oshler also got involved with trying to delve into Lazar's background and took on the challenge to try to verify the W-2 payment slip. He said that he got in touch with the United States Department of Naval Intelligence and went through the details on the W-2 form and was told by a representative that the document was likely to have been generated by them, but they couldn't confirm. He next went to the IRS, which is the American version of the UK's HMRC. The IRS said that the details on the document appeared to be genuine, but the two of the main sets of numbers on the document couldn't be verified. They mentioned that this could be down to the employers or issuers of the document, not wanting the true identity of the employer to be revealed. Both George Knapp and Robert Oshler tried to get further down the rabbit hole with Bob Lazar's ID badge with its MAJ partial title security clearance. This also proved a problem and couldn't be tracked down to any government department, intelligence department or military department. So what do we make of all this? Is Bob Lazar telling the truth? Did he really work on highly classified, ultra-top-secret projects for the United States Department of Naval Intelligence at S-4, roughly 15 miles away from the main Area 51 complex? We really need to start to go through some of Bob's claims and to break down some of his evidence which he says supports his story. Let's start off with the United States Department of Naval Intelligence. Now, I may be completely wrong here, but I couldn't find any evidence of the United States Department of Naval Intelligence even existing. 
Googling this only brought up the Office of Naval Intelligence, and this is also a problem which other researchers have had, with one stating that the United States Department of Naval Intelligence was replaced with the Office of Naval Intelligence before World War II. So what is this mystery department? And also, why would the US Navy be in charge of paying someone who was helping to reverse engineer exotic aircraft? But we can't completely dismiss this claim because we really have no idea whether the United States Department of Naval Intelligence is a black department who controls what goes on out at Area 51. This also then brings us onto his W-2 form and his ID badge. Lazar admitted that the ID badge given to researchers was a copy as he wasn't able to keep the original after his contract was terminated. But this badge matches nothing else that the government's official contractor Wackenhut issues to any of its other wearers. Again, we can't verify this as we don't have the original and the United States military or the Pentagon or whoever is in charge of Area 51 isn't really going to start handing over security badges worn by its employees. Let's move on to Lazar's education. Or lack of. We have to ask the question that if you were searching for physicists to work on reverse engineering a mysterious propulsion system, why would you hire somebody who only just scraped through and graduated from high school in the bottom third of students? There is definite proof of his graduation from W. Tresper Clark High School in 1976. And there is also definite proof of his attendance and educational achievements at Pierce Junior College. But that's about it. Even to this day, both MIT and Caltech deny that there was ever a student who attended by the name of Robert Scott Lazar or Bob Lazar. Why would they lie about this? It would surely be an easy task, especially with today's access to billions of people throughout the internet and social media, to find fellow students who attended these two educational institutions along with Bob Lazar. But they've never come forward. Even when Lazar was convicted in a court of law in Clark County, Nevada, of a felony of pandering, which basically means that he was trying to supply the services of a prostitute, he stated in court documents that he gained his undergraduate degree in physics from Pacifica University. It not only didn't have a physical address, but was also seen as an educational institution which gave away degrees way too easily, and thus closed in the same year which Lazar allegedly gained his physics degree. Then, there's the elephant in the room which is Los Alamos Laboratory. This is a United States Department of Energy National Laboratory and was originally a huge part in the development of nuclear weapons in World War II as part of the Manhattan Project. There is absolutely no evidence at all that Bob Lazar was ever at Los Alamos and again to this day, nobody seems to have come forward to help substantiate his claims of being there. Lazar puts all of this down to the government or the military, essentially trying to make him into a non-person. But it's his timetable in his life that also just doesn't seem to fit. At the same time that he was studying at Caltech, he was actually at Pierce Junior College in California taking courses in electronics. His interviews for EG&G are also very suspect. 
skeptics who have worked on classified programs and in areas requiring top-secret security clearances have all said that vetting processes for these jobs takes months, not just a couple of weeks. Your background would be thoroughly investigated to make sure that you weren't going to become a risk to the project. Every area of your life relationships, financial situations, educational achievements, and much, much more would be well under the microscope. Again, we're dealing with one of the most amazing and sensitive topics known to the human race. The question of are we alone in the universe? The military isn't going to let somebody with a bankruptcy record, as well as proof in newspapers of attention-seeking behavior traits, into their most secret and secure area to work on a project which could completely change the outlook of humanity. Then there's the science. Lazar talks of the reactor generating its own gravity and being able to warp space-time to bring the target of its destination to its immediate location. But wouldn't this process have a dramatic effect on the surrounding space-time as well? He also speaks of gravity being a wave. Well, it isn't. It's a force, the weakest force of all the forces in our known universe. In its simplest terms, the heavier the object or the more mass it has, the greater the gravitational influence is upon surrounding objects. But this is also down to distance. The further away surrounding objects are, the weaker the gravitational influence will be. But as Jeremy Clarkson would say, let's not get bogged down by who knows more about gravity than anyone else. I'll simply leave this to a quote taken directly from one of the educational institutions that Lazar allegedly attended, Caltech. Quote, Gravitational waves are ripples in space-time caused by some of the most violent and energetic processes in the universe. Albert Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves in 1916 in his general theory of relativity. Einstein's mathematics showed that massive accelerating objects, such as neutron stars or black holes orbiting each other, would disrupt space-time in such a way that waves of undulating space-time would propagate in all directions away from the source. These cosmic ripples would travel at the speed of light, carrying with them information about their origin, as well as clues to the nature of gravity itself. Let's now move on to something else that doesn't really bode well for Bob Lazar's story. John Lear. Lazar has stated that during his interviews at EG&G, he was quizzed about his relationship with John Lear. Apparently, John Lear had been hanging around the area of Groom Lake trying to find out what was being tested there, and to his credit, he did see the stealth fighter. Leah's many beliefs about what the government and the military were hiding included bases on the Moon and Mars, multi-level bases on Earth that housed aliens and humans working alongside each other, agreements between the aliens and the US government to enable abduction and study of humans in exchange for advanced technology, which was mentioned earlier in this episode, apparent proof that the dark side of the Moon had fully developed plant life and forests growing in abundance, and much more. But here's the thing with the whole John Lear situation. It was Bob Lazar's friend, Gene Huff, that introduced Bob to John Lear. 
before any of these events had even happened. Gene Huff was an estate agent and John Lear needed a valuation on a property, which both Gene and Bob Lazar agreed to do, in exchange for UFO books, documentation and any other material in John Lear's possession. A lot of the documentation that they took was authored by George Adamski and Billy Mayer, and it was in these documents that the description of a propulsion system was included which used gravity wave amplifiers. Notice the similarity? What about the fuel that powered the UFO? The elusive Element 115. Well, Element 115 was discovered in Russia in 2003, and then after much scientific research, added to the periodic table in 2016. In 2018, its mass was finally figured out by scientists at Berkeley Labs, but it's still very unlikely that this element could be used as a fuel component, because all of the atoms in element 115 decay incredibly quickly. Now, to be fair to Bob Lazar's claims, in the recent documentary, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers, made by Jeremy Corbell, Lazar states that the version of Element 15 that he was working with was stable and that there is no reason why in the future that a more stable isotope will be discovered. Surely this can be said about many heavy elements though. The fact that they can be used for something when we find a way to make them stable. Does this really cover Lazar's statements? Was the entirety of this story concocted by Gene Huff, Bob Lazar, and John Lear. Did the three of them sit down and plan all of this out in intricate detail? Listening to a lot of the evidence above, it seems a very plausible notion. Even the suspicious break-ins and phone clicks witnessed by George Knapp and others could have easily have been pulled off by any one of the three of them. And when the story broke, did anyone really expect the military to start commenting on what was being said? In my opinion, the military are in a no-win situation here. If they comment and deny everything said by Bob Lazar, they are then seen as lying and admitting their guilt. If they stay quiet and make no statements, they are also seen as lying and admitting their guilt. There are two more theories that need putting forward before we close this three-part series, and the first is that Bob Lazar was indeed at Area 51 and S4 and he did indeed see what he thought were extraterrestrial aircraft. But this was because he was allowed to. There has been a growing consensus of people including notable figures like former NASA astronaut and the sixth man to walk on the moon, Edgar Mitchell, who believe that the US military purposely employed Bob Lazar to release allegedly classified information to the public. This could be seen as a ploy by the military and intelligence agencies to move the public attention from classified aircraft to UFOs as a type of disinformation program. But that also raises the question of whether what Bob Lazar saw was of alien origin or was it built using existing technologies. But that still hasn't worked for the Groom Lake facility, as large numbers of curious people still congregate there to see if they can capture footage of an out-of-this-world aircraft. The final theory is that Bob Lazar was telling the truth. Points like the ones we have raised in this episode have been thrown at Lazar for decades, 
but his story still continues to draw attention, and his core supporters like George Knapp, Gene Huff, Jeremy Corbell, and many others still fight in his corner. Lazar has never made fortunes from his story either, and has stated on a number of occasions that the unwanted attention from conspiracy theorists, ufologists and generally curious members of the public have made his life completely miserable at times. Can you imagine walking out of your front door to go to work, only to be confronted by people wanting to share their alien abduction experiences with you and wanting you to tell them your story over and over and over again? I've personally watched so many documentaries about UFOs and Bob Lazar that I've lost count, and researching this three-part series was a fantastic journey. And I have to admit that when you see Lazar speak and watch his body language, he is very convincing. But is this down to years of honing the ability to fool the rest of us? Has Lazar perfected the persona of the scientist who worked at Area 51, and finally got the answer to the question of are we alone in the universe. Jeremy Corbell's documentary definitely puts the arguments forward that for decades, Bob Lazar has been telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But questions will still continue to swirl around this story, and the skeptics will still continue to dismiss his claims. A couple of things that have always puzzled me about Bob Lazar's whole experience are these. At many times throughout his life, since he revealed working at Area 51, he would have been in a vulnerable position which would have enabled an assassin, or assassins, to silence him for good. Why has this never happened? If the information that he possessed was so valuable and critical, why has he never been imprisoned for his breach of the Official Secrets Act? Government-ordered assassinations are a thing of reality all over the world, and if you don't believe it, you only have to look at the Salisbury poisonings in the UK. Now, I know that Russia has a completely different way of dealing with its dirty laundry, but America and its intelligence agencies like the CIA could have easily organised this and made it look like an accident. The other point I wanted to make was that we're still producing bombers and fighter planes that use the jet engine as their means of propulsion. Surely by now, 33 years after Lazar's story came out, the US military would have taken steps in doing away with the jet engine in favour of a more powerful and technologically advanced method of propulsion. But we haven't. The most advanced fighter plane in the world at the point of writing this series is the Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor, which still uses jet engine technology. Its replacement is due to fly around the year 2030, and it'll surely be a huge step forward from what we see in the skies today. But will we finally see a propulsion system that uses technologies from downed, captured, or gifted alien spacecraft? Will Bob Lazar's predictions of a more stable version of Element 115 be finally used as a fuel source for an anti-gravity-enabled fighter plane? In 1945, the world finally put an end to a war that ravaged almost every corner of our planet. And just 24 years after that, NASA put a man on the moon. As stated, it's been 33 years since Robert Scott Lazar ran his hand along the side of an allegedly extraterrestrial spacecraft, 
and watched it lift off the ground in almost complete silence, using a method of propulsion that was way beyond our technological capabilities. But that was then, and this is now. So let's go back to the question which was at the very start of this three-part series. Are we alone in the universe? In my personal opinion, I would definitely say no. The sheer size of our galaxy, let alone the universe, puts the odds of life being out there extremely high. But has that extraterrestrial life visited our planet, made deals with our governments, genetically altered the human race in the distant past? Well, these are questions for another time. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to ask a favour from all of you amazing listeners out there. The show's end-of-season finale revolves around the experiences and stories from listeners just like you. So if you've had an encounter with any element of the paranormal and you'd like to share your story, then I'd love to tell it for you on the Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type up your story and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. And in the subject section of your email, title it Listener Story so it's easy for me to find. All stories are treated with the utmost privacy and respect. And if you wish to remain anonymous, then that's no problem at all. This podcast is recorded, mixed and mastered at my studio, Pink Flamingo Music Productions in Hells Owen in the West Midlands, England. If you have a piece of music you'd like mixing or mastering, or if you have a podcast that needs title music writing, or maybe you want your whole podcast editing and prepping for distribution, then why not get in touch with me via email at pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com with your inquiry and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. For a list of all research sources which I found helpful for the writing of this episode, please see the show's notes. Thank you again for listening to and supporting the Haunted UK podcast. So until the next episode, stay safe and take care. But before you go, why not check out the following great podcast? Hello and welcome to Horror Roulette, where you never know what you're going to get. We're your hosts. I'm Em, and that's my brother Nick. Each week we spin the wheel of misfortune to randomly generate an episode topic, which makes our lives miserable, but this podcast listenable. We've covered everything from the Toy Box Killer to Jack and Jill. From Ed Wood to Black Widows, we've suffered through it all. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out at HorrorRoulette.com. Listen if you dare. <laughs>